thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. Evil has gone. Hello and welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Thank you for being here with us today. My name is Sean P. McCarthy and I'm joined by all of my co-hosts. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffers. Yogi Pollywall. And this week we've got a big episode. We've got a big topic. We're talking about uh, currently the third richest man on earth, uh, the richest man in Europe. We're, we're talking about French billionaire Bernard Arnault. And uh, you may or may not be aware of a company called LVMH. It stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. It's uh, a massive luxury conglomerate. It's got over 75 different brands under it. Uh, as of July 22, 2020, it has a stock market cap of $237.08 billion. Uh, Bernard Arnault, according to Forbes, as of July 2020, is worth $113.2 billion. So he's on an entirely different scale compared to the billionaires we, we typically talk about. This guy is a mega billionaire. He's on the Jeff Bezos level. Bill Gates are the only two who are ahead of him. He's richer than Warren Buffett. So this is an extremely influential, powerful person who I think a lot of particularly Americans are probably not familiar with going into this episode. He's very private. He enjoys his privacy, and a part of that is is uh, France has been known to cut the heads off the people that own the country, and uh, Bernard Arnault should be rightfully afraid. Uh, the man certainly is an oligarch in his nation. It's it's interesting, too, because a lot of his wealth comes from other wealthy people paying uh, tribute to him to display <laughs> their own wealth. Right, right. <laughs> but Yogi is right. It is like how you know chameleons will develop particular camouflage that's like with the trees that uh, they typically live in so if you're a billionaire in france you like develop the keep your head down uh <laughs> camouflage you like you learn to hide the length of your neck so that people yeah. can't measure it out for the guillotine keep your head down keep your head on <laughs> protect your neck you know we we mention sometimes that uh, these billionaires own several countries but we rarely mention all of them and so i'm going to do my best to mention uh, as many as I can. Uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Uh, they got vi Wines and Spirit Lines, Clos de Lambre, Chateau de Quim, Dom Perignon, Ruinet, Moet and Chandon, Hennessy, Vauve Cliquot, Ardegue, Chateau Cheval, Blanc, Glan Morange, Cape Mentel, Chandon, California, Chandron, Brazil, Newton Vineyard, Cloudy Bay, Shandon, Australia, Belvedere, Terraras, De Los Andes, Bodega Numantes, Cheval des Andes, Woodenville, Shandon, China, Aeon, Chandon, India, Klaus 19, and Vulcan de Me Terra. Uh, and that's just the wines and liquor lines. The fashion and leather goods companies are Berluti, Celine, Christian Dior, Emilio, Pucci, Fendi, Fenty, Givenchy, uh, Kenzo, Lowe, Laurel, Piana, Louis Vuitton, Marc Jacobs, Monyat, Nicholas Kirkwood, Patois, Pink Shirt Maker, Rimowad, The Perfume and Cosmetic Lines, Aqua D, Parma, Benefit, Cosmetics, Chaling, Fenty, Beauty by Rihanna, Fresh, Givenchy per Perfumes, Garlensi, Kenzo Perfumes, KVD, Vegan, Beauty, Maison, Francis, Kirkjohn, I'm almost done, Makeup Forever, Marc Jacobs, Beauty Parfums, Christian Dior, Perfumes Low, The Watches and Jewelry Lines, Bul Bulgari, Charmant, Fred, Hublot, Tag, Her, and Zena. And he owns portions of many other businesses with an eye to purchase the brand Tiffany's, the blue box company, ladies and gentlemen. We got four more minutes if you want to make up some companies. <laughs> he owns the you, French little, uh, restaurant company, Escargot. Yeah. He owns the French Airlines, Wee uh, Wee, oui, oui, Pigeon, Fly Fly. <laughs> oh, man, I want to Wee oui, Wee oui, Work. <laughs> Pepe Le Pew and Ors Divorce. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> he owns the uh, Pink Panther Inspector. Sacro Iliac. 
yeah. The man owns uh, way too much shit, and the reason he does is because he's clearly a hoarder, ladies and gentlemen. This is a mental disorder that he has exploited to the nth degree. I just want to say for the record, I would have pronounced all of those company names correctly <laughs> had I been naming them instead of Yoki. He would have messed up Rihanna, but the rest he would have gotten pretty good. It is true. Like, he owns, and you know, so Yogi ran through, again, 75 different luxury goods companies, but he owns the majority stake in Rihanna's company, Fenty. Mm -hmm. She owns like 50% of of her beauty company. He is the one getting the majority of money off it. And like Yogi said, in 2019, he bought Tiffany & Co., the jewelry company, for $16.2 billion. I mean, this is like such a, a worldwide scale he owns over a 406 uh, 4650 retail stores throughout the world with all of these different products and again you just almost any luxury company you can think of this guy owns he's LVH LVMH is the largest luxury goods company in the entire world Right. He he also is connected to several cruise lines and uh, hotels as well. I mean, these are the companies where he has a majority control. But, you know, everything I've just mentioned is connected to the rich elite. They dress, as Andy said, in homage to this person when they try and dress nice. And just to talk like very briefly about the scale of his wealth to, to try and conceptualize it, because I think it's hard to get your mind around just a person being this rich compared mm-hmm. to everyone else on Earth. Um, uh, just from the World Socialist website, in 2019, uh, Bernard Ar- Arnault's income in 2019 was so large that on average, his wealth grew by 1.23 billion U.S. dollars every week. Uh, ass- assuming he slept an average of eight hours, he went to bed every night and woke up $58 million richer. So he makes $58 million every time he goes to sleep and wakes up in the morning. His wealth grew by $2,000 every second. Jeez Louise. So you, you work two weeks for two grand. This guy, or you know, a month or however long it takes you, this guy makes it every single fucking second. He's one of those guys where he's so rich that his... If if you trace his net worth, especially like over the period of COVID, it will go up and down by like three billion or uh, ten billion, like over the course of weeks. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, just depending, which is is a, a very like it goes beyond you know our our, our regular uh, the your regular loser one billionaire, where you know he he absorbs and rejects several of those idiots. Um, just in a very short period of time, and it doesn't really—I mean, maybe it affects him emotionally, but it doesn't—it doesn't really have any major effect on his life. It—it's just kind of a marker of how insanely wealthy he is. Yep. Right. He is so wealthy that he killed Carl Sagan so that nobody would be able to describe the scale of his wealth. <laughs> nobody would be adequately able to conjure me- metaphors that describe right. how wealthy he is. <laughs> The size of his wealth goes on for eons and eons of eternity and light years. Uh, he relate his wealth to like Sagittarius A or something or like a black <laughs> hole or something. His wealth is like if you stand on the beach, every single grain of sand is one dream that he has crushed throughout his life. If you consider the GDP of Tajikistan, Kosovo, or Somalia, a bad day for Bernard Arnault is losing that much money. Billions of billions of dollars being lost and gained on luxury goods that truly nobody needs when you really think about it. Sorry to break the Mm -hmm. uh, impression there, but uh, (laughs) the reality is, is this man makes his money off a luxury good that is only as valuable as the brand itself. Hell, Grubstaker's LLC is worth trillions of dollars if you consider what our brand identity is worth to ourselves. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Notionally, sure. Yeah, but our brand uh, value goes down every time I post on Twitter, so <laughs> sorry about that. But, you know, just because of the scale of the wealth, again, third richest guy on earth, uh, we're going to need multiple parts to tell the story. We're going to do this first part here on the free side. We will continue on the Patreon Uh, But we will, with the time we have, run through as much of his biography as we can. Then we will continue it on the Patreon, and we will also kind of continue some of the scandals we can't get to today. Because that's the fucking thing. Like, we're talking about 75 different luxury brand and good companies. You know, each of those has their own scandal. We can't talk about every bad thing this guy has done, but we'll, we'll try to get to the hits. 
And I guess, you know, just to like kind of give you an overview of some of the things that this guy is responsible for. Well, of course, you know, labor abuse throughout the entire supply chain, um, like anybody else who's involved in the fashion industry or making perfumes or whatever else, we will talk a fair bit about labor abuse. We'll talk about animal cruelty is, uh, I think, a very horrific aspect of his business empire. Mm -hmm. Environmental damage. Um, Interestingly enough, the Notre Dame Cathedral in France, you might remember the fire there, as a publicity stunt, he pledged 200 million euros to rebuilding it and has only given 10 million euros. (laughs) Uh, So one advantage of owning the media is that you can just have them put what you pledge to give in big, bold letters and then not mention what you actually give later on. Of course. Um, In terms of fraction of net worth, I probably contributed more to the Catholic Church by watching Young Pope. (laughs) (laughs) um we'll talk a bit about kind of what he's been doing with the coronavirus crisis we'll talk about his government connections uh tax evasion he's a major tax evader um and you know and also kind of a follow-up from a previous episode we did on joe Lowe and the malaysian state bank uh one uh state fund the one mdb fund which they robbed the malaysian state blind for some reason bernard arnold was sitting on the board of one mdb and he was apparently sitting there at the personal invitation of joe lowe um he claims that this court case is ongoing but he claims he actually never attended a board meeting but kind of weird that he would go and agree to sit on the board of this extremely fraudulent uh multi-billion dollar theft to be fair, I heard from an article that he was only sitting on that board because he had a bad back. He uh, just happened to be there and was like, I need a chair. And they went, yeah, you can sit here. Uh, we cannot cover every scandal uh, that LVMH is a part of, but for 5000 a month or a flat free of 250000 we can be stopped. It's true. We will, Bernard, we will release one episode every week until our demands are met. <laughs> We will cover one new scandal for the next 10 years until we get to everyone or you pay us a quarter of a million dollars. We know where the bodies are hidden, Bernard. We know where you buried those French bodies. I mean, for for Uncle Bernard here, I think we should probably boost it up to maybe uh, 20,000. <laughs> I think so. I think uh, I think a total there- of uh, two, two, a cool 2 million uh, flat fee, if not uh, 20,000 a month. He'll pledge 20000 and that's how he get t- right. 2500 or something. <laughs> right. So based yeah. on the Notre Dame Cathedral, we have to ask for 10 times more than what we actually would need, or 20 times more. Um, but I think, like, the main thesis of this episode is the fact that this guy, like, what we would say about this guy is he's really someone who's introduced, let's say, American business or American neoliberalism He's really one of the people most responsible for introducing that to France, you know, because like we'll go through some of his business dealings throughout these episodes. And what you find is almost every major business deal that this guy is involved in, there are people who say, hey, this guy fucked me over. This guy straight up lied to my face and made, you know, X, Y and Z commitments to me. And then he broke all those pledges uh, as soon as the deal was done. So. You know, this guy's kind of a lying scumbag businessman. And the other thing is, he's not a fashion mogul. Like, I think people get this idea that because he, again, owns the largest fashion conglomerate in the world, that he has, like, a fashion sense. But no, he was just a regular businessman. His dad and grandfather were in construction and real estate. And he just saw a play, which we'll talk about, that he was able to buy into a fashion conglomerate with uh, support from the French government and political connections. But... He's really just a businessman, a lying businessman, and he has since used his wealth, power, and influence to influence the French government, uh, particularly the current president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, into all these sorts of reforms that have made him even more rich and even more powerful. I mean, the man has been nicknamed the wolf in cashmere, but if you ask me, the man's a skunk. He stinks Mm -hmm. all around, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just tired of people uh, like this bulldozing their way into industries and then being lauded as legendary house owners when, in my mind, he seems to just be the largest slave owner of intellectual property. The The idea of Christian Dior is owned by Bernard Arnault. And in, in the same way that a, a, a slave owner owns a person, he owns the idea of Christian Dior, but that doesn't make him 
Christian Dior. It just makes him a fucking skunk. Smelly and uh, like Pepe Le Pew, offensive to women. Right. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that they kill three million pangolins every day to make their bags. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not including the way that they treat alligators to get their alligator leather bags. Just straight gutting them. I mean, like... You know, you can envision the fucking, like, Scarface scene with a chainsaw. Just imagine that, but with alligators. And alligators are fucking raw. Like, they don't fucking die off one cut. So a lot of these alligators were just alive. Just fucking cut across the neck. Fucking steel beam being pushed down their fucking uh, (laughs) noggin. And the alligator, like, is is still kind of moving. PETA had to buy stocks in LVMH to enact any change for uh, them to make it so that they didn't treat alligators that way. But they're fucking treating gators like this. Imagine how they're treating cows. Imagine how they treat people when they're going to be using human skin for bags (laughs) in the near future. Hmm. Check out the new Louis Vuitton. It's got the skin of LeBron James. It's going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. Trust me. Now, if they do it with stem cells, is that okay? (laughs) (laughs) It's only excess skin, so... Yeah, Yeah. people will sell some... If you grow human skin in a lab, is, is that acceptable? See, this is his plan. Get Americans fat, give them liposuction and takes on their skin, and then resell that skin as luxury products back to the Americans. I'm telling you, it's all cyclical. So you're going to get Americans uh, addicted to human, human skin leather products. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, his nickname is the Silence of the Lambs Billionaire. <laughs> He's, he's actually selling Americans these cosmetic creams to make their skin more be- uh, better for his belts and purses. He's play- playing 12D chess here. What do you think is going to happen when animals are extinct? What is going to happen when, oh, we don't have any more animals? Well, you can start rocking human skin. Yeah. Trust me, it's fucking, it's in vogue. There will always be someone willing to pay for the real thing. <laughs> Yeah, even if they know that, even if they don't know that it's actually fake, which we will cover in terms of labor abuses later on in this episode. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so again, the scale of his wealth is kind of incomprehensible. He owns properties all over the world. Did just want to mention he owns a private island in the Bahamas, and as we all know, only the most up and up people own private <laughs> islands near the Bahamas. Um, you know, and also he hires. He has a very close relationship with. Uh, basically every government France has had since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hires former French security heads to do his security. He has his own little company spies. This guy has a lot of money and a lot of fucking power. And I guess before we start at the biography, I did just want to spend a second on France because, you know, as an American and most of our listeners are American, you might have this idea in your head that France is a bad place to be a billionaire, especially compared to the United States. You might think, oh, they get hosed with taxes and, you know, there's uh, much better union protection. And in fact, we mentioned this on um, our episode on uh, Bernie Marcus, the Home Depot billionaire. He was uh, worried and he gave a quote that he was worried that if the U.S. passed card check labor union laws, that the U.S. would become France. That was Mm -hmm. the quote that he gave. That was his nightmare scenario. And the thing is, like, France, you know, it's a little harder to be a billionaire there than in the United States, but things are changing. Things have definitely been changing since Emmanuel Macron, a close friend of Bernard Arnault, neoliberal reformer, became president of France in 2019. Um, I just want to give you an example of this, again, from the World Socialist website in 2018, Uh, In the first half of 2018, France's 13 wealthiest people became $27.8 billion richer than at the start of 2018. This has made France the country in the world where billionaires are increasing their wealth the fastest, Mm. according to a report published by Bloomberg. Um, They give the example in the first half of 2018, the wealth of French billionaires increased by 12.2%. This compares to only 1.2% for the wealth of American billionaires and 6.3% for the wealth of Chinese billionaires. So, you know, compared to the United States, it's not necessarily a great place to be a billionaire, um, France, but it's getting better. It's getting much better. And part of this is because President Macron eliminated the solidarity tax on wealth, what's called the ISF. 
uh, in France in 2017. This was a wealth tax that existed in France since 1981. It's a tax on assets in excess in excess of 1.3 million euros. Uh, so he eliminates that. He won't bring it back. Uh, Macron slashed the corporate tax rate. He's cut income taxes for the rich. And all at the same time, he's demanded pension reforms. He's uh, increased working hours. He's tried to cut wages for average workers. He tried to impose an austerity gas tax. And this is what led to the yellow vest protests. Mm. But Macron's Had entire argument... with his teacher. Yes. <laughs> uh but Macron's entire argument for these kind of austerity and these pension reforms and all this stuff is that there's no money. But the reality is the first thing Macron did when he came through, when he came into power was cut taxes severely for the richest and most powerful people in France, and he won't put back the wealth tax. So it is just something where you might have this idea in your head about France, but the reality is right now no country on earth are billionaires having their wealth increase fa faster than they are in France. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. It's crazy how, like, you know, as an American, I grew up with, like, a not indicatively propaganda, but just, like, a general pejorative, like, fuck France, you know? And uh, I've had a moderate change of heart recently with seeing the uh, French protest footage with like, you know, French motherfuckers can fucking bang. But then also seeing the amount of fashion documentaries and Bernard Renault documentaries I've seen so far. I've just been like, oh, fuck this side of France. Like, I can love a croissant, but hate the elitism that, that comes across with the snobbiness of French people that is perceived to be all French people. But in reality, is this elite core group of people that certainly seem to own the idea that French is better than everything else. The like the previous administration running France, the Socialist Party, which is not not really like a socialist party, but that's their name. Um, they would like receive endless shit for like making like very small tweaks to the wealth tax, but still taking it, uh, still basically having it in place, and like in some cases proposing to strengthen it, which um, Arnal actually had some some feelings about. Um, but like the the socialist, the previous socialist president uh, Francois Hollande was trying to like um, strengthen the wealth tax for a while, and Arnaud actually got into a thing about trying to get it, uh, Belgian citizenship to dodge it mm -hmm. for a while. And one of the main newspapers in France, Liberation, they they posted like a big headline. Um, like with a, a picture of him saying like I think it was Get lost you rich idiot <laughs> 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 And uh I mean it was in reference to like alright we'll just go to Belgium then basically <laughs> Like we don't need you but we do need we do want your money though. And yeah. like he tried to sue Liberation magazine mm -hmm. for this depiction of him. When like he's like very clearly trying to like skirt tax tax laws. In the uh, documentary I watched, intriguing portraits Bernard Arnault, the thirty billion euro man from twenty seventeen. Uh, they ask him about how he was attempting to to move to Bel gain. He was attempting to gain Belgian citizenship to avoid taxes, which he vehemently denies. But then they found that he paid 13,000 euros to the Belgian government in 2011. And he's like, no, I've, I've always paid taxes to the French government and like walked out on the interview. He got so heated. So the man's got tax secrets. Wait, they found out that he paid 13,000 euros to the Belgian government? Yeah, so like apparently in the documentary they talk about how in... 2011 i believe he stayed in belgium for belgium for 11 days so he paid them because he wanted to be considered a resident like he was starting <laughs> yeah. the paperwork for i i can now legally say i live in france because i have this apartment since x amount of time you know but then the things that steven just mentioned about the magazine running that that uh spread on him among a few other things he decided to renege that but i mean the man was just straight up skirting tax law and uh, got caught doing it he's like ah, i guess i probably can't do that I, I can I can see why he wanted to to get in with Belgium because I sound like a cheap bribe. <laughs> <laughs> to to Sean's point, uh, you can see how far things have gotten out of control with like right wing governments. 
if like i mean we used to be very critical like people on the left were critical of francois Hollande and the socialist government for like doing minor mm-hmm. tweaks but now we have people mm-hmm. just elim- straight up eliminating wealth tax wealth taxes and stuff and it like it almost makes you wish for those sort of neoliberally but still center left governments right yeah and we'll we'll talk about belgium in more detail because you know again when we say there's uh a hundred different scandals we could talk about. One of them is tax evasion, and we will talk about tax evasion in a bit more detail. But ridiculous. But you know, like the basic deal is he incorporates. We say he owns seventy-five companies. He incorporates a bunch of them in Belgium, and then they'll have like you know one office, or they'll have you know one floor with all of the companies on him and like two employees, and they'll book you know eight hundred million euros profit that year in mm-hmm. Belgium because right. they can pay cheaper taxes on that. It's just straight tax avoidance, and he's also doing uh, was doing shady shit with his foundation to pass on his wealth to his children, and and we'll talk about all that. But I did just want to mention uh, French National Assembly member Danielle Obano was quoted in, ja- uh, in Jacobin saying that quote tax evasion costs public services in France. 80 to 100 billion euros every year, and she specifically names Bernard Arnault as one of the uh, greatest tax avoiders in France. So the thing is, with all this coronavirus pandemic, there have been demands to reinstate the wealth tax because, you know, why should regular people be paying the burden? Why not, you know, one of the, the third richest man on earth? But so far, they have resisted. And one other thing on the coronavirus, according to uh, Mark Botenga, quoted also in Jacobin, the European Central Bank's pandemic emergency purchase program was checked by a a Dutch website, and they saw that a lot of the billions that they have been loaning out have been going directly to LVMH. Wow. Uh, They get cheaper loans from the ECB than Spain or Italy could get on financial markets. So... When we talk about how he's using his government connections, we will talk about that. And a lot of it is just, again, free money from the government, but also preference in terms of when it's time for, you know, collective belt tightening, there's no ask that he be the one to do it. The man's a skunk. He stinks. He's trying to fuck cats with white stripes on their back, okay? You don't know what a skunk look like. He's just trying to fuck another puss. Is this racist somehow? <laughs> To compare Bernard Arnault to, to Pepe Le Pew? To compare French people to skunks? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I think there's there's certainly a, a American imperialistic uh, racial view. But, I, I mean, French people aren't a race. So, you know, I and it's certainly as an Indian man, I'll, I'll get away with it. I don't go fuck. Okay. We'll leave it to you then. So I've been reading the memoirs of Julius Caesar, and I think this guy had the right idea about French people. <laughs> <laughs> He's really, you know, like... This guy had some innovative solutions, and I think we need to give him his due when it comes to the Gallic peoples. (laughs) But I guess just before we start the biography, I did want to mention those government connections. Uh, When we talk about him being uh, Bernard Arnault, being close to the current president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, he wrote an op-ed endorsing him two days before the election. Uh, Macron's wife, the aforementioned school teacher, Bridget Macron, Bridget Macron, uh, she was a teacher of two of Arnold's younger children. Um, she exclusively wears LVHM luxury brands in public. That's like Ugh. free advertising. Apparently, the wife of Nicolas Sarkozy also did that. She exclusively wore Dior in public. So, of course, you know, the first lady of France wearing your brand, that's great advertising. Um, apparently, yeah, he did a similar thing. He did a similar thing with the Princess Diana where he gave her a Dior bag and uh, she would take it everywhere and people loved it. And they were like, I want Princess Diana's handbag. I want to be just like her. You think You think when she stopped wearing it, he uh, sent some paparazzi to uh, follow her into a tunnel? <laughs> it turns out she decided to stop carrying my bag. Send in the hounds. <laughs> that's, that's Bernard Arnault under closed doors. That's what he sounds like. Oh, Diana, I am so sorry to hear that you uh, don't want to use my bag. Uh, uh, is this your driver? Would you like some wine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what people don't know was at the funeral, he was handing out that bag to people that came. So sad. The the chilling last phone call he gave to Diana where he said, you're about to know what an alligator feels like. <laughs> uh, uh, 
But uh, regarding Macron, President Macron, his um, his chief strategist, his former chief strategist was a guy named, or uh, is a guy named Ismail Emilian. He left Macron's government in 2019 and is now a high-ranking LVMH executive. Hmm. So this is Macron's chief strategist is, of course, engaged in revolving door politics between the biggest luxury company in the world. Um, also, regarding those connections to former French President Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, Bernard Arnault was apparently one of just two witnesses at Sarkozy's marriage in 1995. Um, the wedding of um, Arnault's daughter uh, was attended by Sarkozy, by the uh, wife of former French President Jacques Chirac, um, by leading Socialist Party official Hubert Vedrin. Uh, Vedrin was a foreign minister in the uh, socialist government from 97 to 2002. Before that, he was an advisor to the uh, socialist government of Mitterrand. Uh, he was a state secretary in the 90s. And in 2009, in fact, he joined the board of LVMH, where he has remained since. So you could find a million different examples of this kind of revolving door between the French government and LVMH. Yes, his daughter Delphine Arnault from his first marriage, both of them, her marriage and his first marriage, obviously, have gotten divorced. So you know they don't eat butt. But uh, Delphine Arnault is now with a partner who is also a billionaire who's wrapped up in some scandals involving uh, sex trafficking. And we'll talk more about that later on. Right, they divorced because the, the guy just couldn't bring himself to kill an alligator every time <laughs> so that she could get off. Tired just, of torturing a the lizard. The blood of the alligator just gets me so horny. Please, please, please cut. Please cut the knife. Please cut. Please, not the knife. Cut the alligator. You guys think the alligator horny blood bit goes a little too far? Uh, I think it go a little farther. Uh <laughs> Oh, if the alligator is still alive when you have sex with me, I just my 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 body cannot orgasm. Please, I need I need the blood of the innocent alligator to allow my body to. Or please, please, please cut! Oh, the metal rod needs to go deeper, all the way down the tail. Please, please cut! Can I make, can I make a request? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, have her talk about how wet her pussy is. Oh, the blood once once it's revealed, it just. It, as it comes out, makes me so... Oh, it's like as if my vagine is just as wet as the blood coming out of the alligator. Oh, the, the lizard from the, the, the reptilian blood just fuels my, my, my horniness. Yes, now, please. wait a minute. Oh, yes. Yes, release the blood onto my cervix. Yes. Yes. I will divorce oh, you man. for a man that sex traffics. I, I die. This... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've lost interest. Um, I don't know why, but uh, I guess we can continue with this episode. <laughs> Julius Caesar goes, yeah, you see why I killed all these people? <laughs> it's what they're all like. Um, but yeah, and so before we kind of start the biography of Bernard Arnault, I do want to give a couple thanks and a couple citations in terms of what our sources is, because again, these are... It was a big episode, a lot to cover. Um, we drew from a variety of sources. Uh, I read most of the book Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster by Dana Thomas. I recommend that one. Uh, my three co-hosts watched the documentary Mercy Patron by Francois Ruffin as an activist filmmaker in France who made a documentary about him. Uh, yeah, I want to highly recommend that one. It's um, uh, The best way I can describe it is it's uh, Michael Moore Tactics uh, as performed by French Nathan Fielder. <laughs> uh, very excellent documentary. Yeah, you're not right. wrong. It's just, imagine Michael Moore if he takes a cigarette break every 15 minutes, right. and that's... And also, if you don't have access to that film, we have a uh, Pink Panther source that uh, we can share with you if you, if you would like. Um, and lastly, I do also want to thank one of our podcast listeners, uh, a guy named Ben, who hit us up and helped us out. You can find him on Twitter at Soursopin, S-O-U-R-S-O-P-P-I-N. He's a native French speaker. He helped us out with some of the documents and some of the kind of cultural nuances that we uh, miss or that we don't really know as Americans. So uh, big thanks there for uh, the help in researching. 
And in terms of starting the biography, I think even before we go to the actual birth of Bernard Arnault, which occurs in 1949, I think before we even go there, we should just talk a little bit about the history of both Dior and Louis Vuitton. Because, you know, he buys these brands, these companies in the 1980s. So he's not directly responsible for the things that he that they did before the 1980s. But part of what makes these companies so valuable is their re- their long history and their reputation as luxury brands. You know, like if you buy Louis Vuitton and you know it goes back to the 1850s, goes back to 1854, mm-hmm. that has there's a value to that that just like a company founded two years ago doesn't have. So, I mean, there's a value that we perceive, but that's also right. artificial. We, I want to make that clear. You know, Grubstakers has been around since 2008, but that doesn't make us any better than a podcast that started yesterday. You know what I mean? Mm. Not to say that we're not awesome, but the idea that brand legacy is something that has value is artificially inflated by Bernard Arnault. It's certainly impressive, but if you show me a car that's from a company that's been making cars for 300 years and it's shittier than a car company that started two days ago, I'm going to go with a car company that started two days ago. Yeah, absolutely. And Dior, actually, so Bernard Arnault makes his fortune first by buying Dior and then by using the profits to buy the Louis Vuitton company. Um, but Dior actually is kind of his first interest. And he claims in an interview with the Financial Times, he recalls a story of when he was living in New York City or in New York in the 1980s, early 1980s, he took a, a, a New York City taxi driver who didn't know the president of France, who it was, but he knew the brand Dior. So this is like the kind of story he gives about how he recognized the value of these luxury brands is that Americans didn't know the president of France, but they knew the luxury brands from France. Um, so again, there's a real value on that. Yeah, from that documentary I watched, when he leaves France for the United States in the early 80s, he talks about being in New York and the cab driver being like, oh, I like French culture. And him saying, do you know the French president? And the guy being like, no, but I do know Christian Dior. But when you think about cab drivers and people that work in the tourist industry, they're just trying to make conversations that they can get a better tip, if you ask me. Like, the fact that this cab driver inspires him to do what he does, I don't know. I kind of think all of his stories are bullshit. Like, he talks at one point that he had a conversation with Steve Jobs, who he considered an idol. And Steve Jobs told Bernard Arnault that, hey, in 50 years, I don't know if people are going to be rocking iPods and iPhones, but I bet they'll be drinking Don Perignon. And Bernard Arnault champions that story. And it's like, "Mm, I don't, I don't. Steve Jobs not thinking iPhones were going to be fucking popular in 50 years? Uh, no. Uh, I, I, if you ask me, the man's filled with hooey. He stinks like a skunk and a daughter that can only come if she sees alligator blood. <laughs> he recalls the story of a New York City taxi driver telling him, Hey, buddy, if you want to kill an alligator in the back seat, you're going to have to pay extra. <laughs> um. But yeah, so to start with uh, Dior or Christian Dior, as it was originally called, another thing he did with that brand is he took the Christian Dior, he shortened it out just to Dior. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, I'm sure some marketing person told him to do that. Um, It was set up originally in 1946 by a French fashion designer, Christian Dior. Uh, This was originally a, a Paris fashion house focused mainly on clothing and perfume, But what's interesting is Christian Dior was the designer, but he set it up with financial backing from and ownership by a businessman named Marcel Boussac. And that would be who um, Bernard Arnault would eventually buy it from. Um, uh, He buys it in 1984 and will tell that story. But I did just want to mention this businessman who gave Christian Dior the financial backing, Marcel Boussac, he was a member of the Council National a consultative body created by the Vichy French regime during the Nazi occupation. Oh. Uh, Boussac was very cozy with Nazi officers. Apparently, he was like an owner of like thoroughbred racehorses, hmm. some of which the Nazis actually stole back to Nazi Germany yeah, when they right. were fleeing France. They loved his racehorses so much that they uh, stole some of them. Uh, <laughs> also, they he, were facing a gas shortage. You want to get out of there as fast as <laughs> you can. <laughs> Um, so another horse but, billionaire is what we're trying to say here. Yes. Well, horse, Nazi, but, horse Nazis as well. Right. But more important to that, 
apart from being close to the Vichy regime, he supplied, um, Boussac supplied 110 million meters of high quality fabric to the Kriegsmarine, the German Nazi Navy. So, you know, in terms of like, how does this brand Dior come to get the reputation it has today? Uh, the Nazi Kriegsmarine? Com- Kriegsmarine, yes. Yeah, that's uh, it, it, that'll be an interesting side detail when we cover the guy from Craigslist. Craigsmarine, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess. Yeah, but anyways, looking for Untersea boat ca- commander, <laughs> thirty thirty marks per hour. <laughs> Qu- should be a quick job. <laughs> I'm just imagining the uh, thoroughbred racehorses uh, that the Nazis are trying to like desperately gallop out of France, and they're going, "No, stop goose stepping, go faster." <laughs> <laughs> but so Marcel Boussac, the money behind Dior, Nazi collaborator, made some money selling fabric to the Nazis. Um, Louis Vuitton, similar story, but it goes back longer. Louis Vuitton is founded 1854. It's first a luxury trunk designer. Trunks were very important for the well-to-do back in the mid-1800s. You know, uh, you get to go travel. You're some of the few people who get to travel. You bring all your stuff on a trunk in the train or the steamliner or however you're getting around, a steamer right. trunk. Um, so It's luggage. The, it's fucking, right. you need luggage to fucking carry your shit. Right. And so, you know, to kind of skip to uh, their relationship to the Nazis, uh, the brand goes from 1854 up to, uh, of course, the 1930s. Uh, quoting from the book Deluxe by Dana Thomas, um, the Louis Vuitton family, you know, some members of it resisted. Even, I think, one died in the concentration camps. But the patriarch of the family was a guy named Gaston Louis Vuitton, he sided, of course, with French General Philippe Pétain's Nazi-backed government in Vichy, uh, again, quoting, for, quote, both political as well as business reasons, and instructed his oldest son, Henry Louis, to go to work with Pétain's regime to keep Louis Vuitton going. The company had a store on the ground floor of Vichy's elegant Hotel de Parc, next to other luxury goods shops, including the jeweler Von Cleef and Arpais. All were shut down by the Nazis except for Vuitton. Ah. Furthermore, Vuitton opened a factory per- to produce propaganda items, including more than 2,500 busts of General Patton, and his son, Henry Luis, was decorated by Patton's regime for his loyalty. Um, so, you know, this company survives the war because they collaborated with the Vichy government, and what I also found very kind of funny is this quote from Electronic Intifada talking about Louis Vuitton's links to um, Israeli apartheid and kind of illegal settlements, which we'll talk more about on the next episode. Um, in 2004, LVMH, the company tried to avoid the bad publicity that its Louis Vuitton division collaborated with the Nazis during the German occupation of France. While writing about the history of Louis Vuitton in honor of its 150th anniversary, author Stephanie Bonvinci requested the company's wartime documents. Quoting, she was told that the company documents for the period 1930 to 1945 were destroyed in a fire. Unquote. So... Not impossible. It was World War II, but very convenient that yeah. the fire ravaged 1930 to 1945 documents entirely. Yeah, these are those files talking to Gaston. I've been burnt by you before. <laughs> this happened to be burned in a fire in one of the uh, only cities in Europe not to be firebombed. <laughs> <laughs> It is actually, you know, minor history note. Um, Paris was, of course, not bombed, like Andy just said. Hitler, when they were retreating, did give the order to destroy Paris. But, you know, his uh, Nazi general in charge could not bring himself to do that. So, you know, the mass murder and deportation of all Jews in Paris was one thing. But the destruction of the city itself was a bridge too far for the Nazis. They just couldn't stop thinking about that alligator blood, dog. They're like, we're going to stop that? Come on, man. Come on, Hitler. I know you went to that alligator blood pose. Come on, dog. They're like, these these people aren't alligators. They have rights. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, and again, just kind of the thing that's worth noting is so much of the brand's value when it comes to Louis Vuitton and Dior is they survived the wartime period. 
They -hmm. survived the wartime period by collaborating with the Nazis, and this is what gives them the cachet to say, we go back to 1854, or we go back to 1946, because we're the only people who had money after the fucking war, because we collaborated with the fucking government. But to start the actual story of Bernard Arnault, he was born March 5th, 1949. He was born in a city in northern France, right on the border with Belgium. Um, At the Ruba Hospital. Right. Uh, his grandfather was in construction. The, the family company was called Ferret Savinel. Uh, mm-hmm. It was founded in 1926, his grandfather's construction company. Um, and apparently, as he was, when he was a child, his grandfather took him to these construction sites. And it should just be noted that post-war France, you know, both World War One and World War Two, there was a construction boom and a baby boom. So that was a good business to be in, to found a construction company in 1926, because, of course, France is devastated by the First and then the Second World War. There's a lot of rebuilding, a lot of construction to be done. Um, yeah, he's he was instilled by his mom to play piano, and his mom and grandmother's love of uh, Dior and Louis Vuitton, because at that time, those companies were known for making, like, jackets for old ladies that was kind of their brand's mo in terms of what they produced in that region because the textile factories were in where he grew up um, according to that documentary I watched on amazon uh when his grandfather passed he put a report this is a story from his own mouth which i think is bullshit but when his grandfather died he put a report card saying that he was the top of the class in the coffin as a testament to his grandmother who raised him with a strict Catholic upbringing to be the top of the class and to always try and put the family's honor above everything else, basically. I don't believe I don't believe that this, this boy was able to put his report card in his grandfather's uh, coffin. Kind of odd and creepy, if you ask me. Um, but there is a close relationship to his grandparents who grew up uh, not too far from his folks as well. And that... Uh, instilled his dedication to being the fucking skunk he became i like how he he made it about his religion like oh this will get you into heaven grandpa i got (laughs) i got an a and you know the other thing is i couldn't find anything about his family during the occupation itself and i have no idea what they did they probably just kept their heads down but i'm just gonna assume that if they were involved in the resistance the most uh richest person in france would publicize that you know, like nothing wrong with keeping her head down, but I would assume they were not active resistors. Um, so Bernard's father, Jean Arnault, uh, was an employee of his grandfather's company. He graduates from the Ecole Centrale in Paris, a, a French engineering school. He marries Bernard's mother in 1947. As we mentioned, you know, his mother apparently had a, he says, a, quote, fascination for Dior. She she wore the perfumes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um he she also taught him as we mentioned the piano but also horse riding and tennis he still plays tennis today um and these are uh class markers in france these are like kind of bourgeois at least upper middle class activities to be engaged in typically he was partly raised by his grandmother he describes her as loving and kind but quote rigorous um, his sister, he was close to, Dominique, she died of cancer in 2006, and he describes as what he was growing up, he describes breathing through, breezing through high school and not having to work too hard, um, then a, upon entering a preparation program to get into uh, a grand école, he becomes surprised at the amount of effort involved, describing it as, quote, a uh, cold shower, and he has to adapt quickly. Um, he's accepted at the uh, école polytechnique, in mm-hmm. uh, Paris in 1969. Um, and just from our, our, our listener, Ben, uh, the concept of Grand École, I was not familiar with, of course, I, I didn't grow up in France. Um, basically, uh, Grand Écoles are considered the best school in France in a, mm-hmm. in a given domain. So a polytechnique is, uh, this is an engineering school, a very prestigious right. engineering school. And Education is highly subsidized in France, so most of these grand écoles are public and the tuition fees are very low. However, they're extremely selective with extremely low admission rates. So the wealthy people, such as, to an extent, Bernard Arnault, they have a leg up because they can, of course, hire private tutors and do all this other studying that the general public does not have access to. As well as have the connections to the people that run the positions of who gets accepted and who doesn't. Money begets money. 
Right. So you can increase your odds of getting in by going to an elite prep school. Um, and the prep schools tend to mostly just take students from the uh, elite high schools. Uh, and these are mostly white and well-off people within France. But so he graduates in 1971 from the École Polytechnique, uh, again, France's most prestigious engineering school. Um, he joins his father's company. Again, a very common story with these billionaires we cover. He joins his dad's construction company in 1971. Um, in 73, he marries Anne uh, de Waverin. This is his first wife. Uh, she's from a prominent textile manufacturing uh, manufacturing co uh, company, or family, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and through her, he will get some of the political connections that we'll talk about further on the next episode um, but just kind of a weird note Arnold uh, from the book deluxe by Dana Thomas Arnold kept the marriage a secret from the employees at his father's company he didn't wear a wedding band and when his daughter was born his secretary didn't even know what um, what a fucking stinky skunk what a fucking right. piece of shit move is that right well some people in France really go to the extra mile to have their mistresses <laughs> not not know where to contact the family at. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, so as we mentioned, 1971, he's a civil engineer at his dad's company, his dad and his grandfather's construction company. Um, and he convinces his dad, there's various stories of how this actually comes about, but he convinces his dad to basically sell off construction entirely and mm -hmm. move into vacation real estates. Uh, vacation real estate. So in like 71 or just after, they sell off the construction-related assets for 40 million francs. Um, they rebrand it from Ferret 7L to just uh, Farinel. Um, in uh, 1974... Let me interject here, Sean. Yeah. So this would be at the age of 25, he would help dismantle the construction business and morph it into a rental property empire. Uh, in this era, in the early 70s, and with an ad campaign funded by Bernard Arnault, he would create Farinelle into a, a very popular vacation rental property. Uh, he, in the documentary, he would confide with a coworker that it was good that his dad was away because I'm going to invest 20,000 francs into an ad camp campaign on the radio for the company. Uh, the ad campaign was this commercial where this woman is like running around a dude and the guy's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm running around the owner of the property. And then there's a jingle. We, we have the drop right here. So this, this this fucking jingle is his fucking crown gem in the beginning. That at age twenty five he puts uh, twenty thousand francs, which as Sean mentioned, the construction company that he sold off garnered them forty million. So he you know he uses a percentage of the wealth that he has into advertising this these new rental properties, and it works like gangbusters because apparently in France fucking it's fucking hot. Um, our listeners can't see, but actually in that advertisement, they're murdering an alligator. <laughs> but yeah, this, but yeah. this, you know, it's a fucking, it's a jingle in the seventies and it promotes extravagant vacations. And, and this shit, this shit works. This ad campaign is his entry into high society and what begins the Bernard Arnault story. Hmm. Right. And so I got the the timeline a little a little wrong there. He joins the company in 71, then in 74, as Yogi mentioned, he becomes the head of construction when he's 25 years old. And this is where um, his dad apparently gives him the keys to the real estate business, allows him to run it. Uh, he apparently had about a thousand people working for him at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty well to do already. Um, he becomes the CEO in 1978. And just quoting from the book um, Deluxe by Dana Thomas, um, within five years of uh, the time he becomes CEO, the company's development arm, uh, Farinelle, had become one of the top private home developers in France, specializing in vacation homes. Right. So this decision to sell off the construction business and just focus on you know vacation homes and real estate is actually it's doing very well. He's making good money, but... In 1981, Francois Mitterrand is the first popularly elected 
socialist president of France. He becomes the first socialist or avowed socialist to become elected president of France. And unsurprisingly, the business community freaks out. Mm-hmm. You know, he starts by nationalizing banks and major industrial businesses at the start of 1981. So, you know, rich people panic. And Bernard Arnault is one of them. He actually flees France and moves to the United States for about three years. Right. Yeah, he moves to uh, Palm. He moves to Florida and decides to develop properties in Palm Springs, Florida. In that documentary, Intriguing Portraits, Bernard Arnault, the 30 billion euro man, he says, I wasn't I wasn't escaping France. No, 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 no. I went out to see the ocean. The water was calling me. (laughs) He literally goes, I I wasn't leaving because I was afraid that the government was going to cut my head. I was leaving because the water beckoned me. (laughs) Word, the fucking Mediterranean Sea wasn't close enough. You had to go to fucking Florida. Right. And, you know, so, of course, uh, this is the period where he's living in the United States from like 81 to 84, where he has the Thomas Friedman talking to a cab driver to get your worldview (laughs) experience. Right. Um, They also wanted to get some like hands on experience on the alligator strangling. (laughs) Great. (laughs) You got to really start to understand your product. Um, But again, from the book Deluxe by Dana Thomas, he moves out to Long Island with his wife and his two children at the time. Uh, He buys a splendid Mediterranean-style home facing New York's Long Island Sound. He enrolled his children in good schools. He began building vacation homes in Florida with moderate success. Um, But uh, Bernard gives a quote, uh, quote, It's tough in the United States if you haven't moved in the right circles from the start, unquote. So basically... Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, look, we, we can't deny that this guy knows how the game is played, where he makes some money. Um, it's hard to see what he was actually doing, but it's uh, it's kind of an obscure period of his life. But he was clearly moving in Florida real estate. But he even admits as much like it's harder to make a fortune in the United States if you haven't moved in the right circles from the start. And so what's going to happen, and we'll continue this on the next episode, is President Mitterrand of France is going to make a neoliberal turn around 83, 84. He's going to fire some of the more socialist advisors. He's going to turn the page and go in a new direction. And Bernard Arnault is going to be smart enough to see that and come back to France where he has moved in the right circles from the beginning. And he is able to uh, make a fortune with these political connections. And and I guess just the last thing I'll, I'll say on this side is, as we mentioned, this guy is not a fashion icon. He's just a businessman. Mm. And so he's in real estate, he's in construction, and he recognizes that the brand Dior and all the other companies that are uh, folded up into it is going to be in trouble in 83, 84, and he's going to come back and he's going to buy it with the help of the French government, basically out of bankruptcy. And he's going to reorganize it, and he's going to do all this kind of, uh, let's say, American business, downsizing, firing employees, streamlining operations, you know, getting rid of all the manufacturing bullshit, eliminating 8,000 or so jobs, just get rid of everything except Dior and go back on his promise to keep those jobs. And this is how he makes his first score. And uh, just from there, it's been all the way up. And we'll we'll continue this discussion on the Patreon side. Um, before we go, we uh, lost a... Very, very uh, well-respected and a uh, friend of our shows, uh, Michael Brooks, uh, suddenly and tragically passed away. Um, he was graciously on our show and, and was very kind and, and generous to not only be on, but but to let us know he enjoyed what we were making. Um, I, I think I might have been the least uh, acquainted with his work, but uh, after his appearance, I, I got to know more of it. But the thing I, I gleaned from uh, my short time with him was just how kind and generous he was. I think that it's um, maybe a misnomer, but oftentimes in uh, the podcast world, if you if you have heat, you could be a dick. I mean, just in any industry, if you're if you're um, if you're popular, you could be an asshole. And Michael Brooks was was so kind and considerate. Uh, oftentimes, I usually dislike people associated with uh, Boston, but uh, Michael Brooks <laughs> uh, surprisingly was uh, exemplary in kindness, compassion, and truly listening not wanting to talk louder than you when you were speaking but to be able to comprehend what the person across the table was saying to make sure that what you said was heard equally uh it's a tragic loss yeah um michael brooks died suddenly at 37 years old it's uh it's very sad and you know i'd known the guy less than a year 
and he actually just Twitter DM'd me kind of out of the blue one day, and uh, I've read a lot of people have had that experience. You know, uh, our listeners might know he came and he did our episode about Adir Macedo, um, the Brazilian billionaire. He would later, he told us at the time, but mm-hmm. he hadn't announced it yet, he would later go and, um, and interview former Brazilian President Lula, and that was, of course, you know, a, a major highlight for him because Lula's an inspiration to, to him as well as the rest of us. And, you know, it was so nice because he came out and it's somebody who is coming onto a smaller podcast just for the fuck of it. He didn't really get Mm -hmm. anything out of doing it, but he was the nicest fucking funniest guy you could meet. And I mean, it's just such a tragedy because like I said, I only knew the guy less than a year. Twitter DM'd back and forth. The only time I got to meet him was when he came and did the podcast. And it's just something you assume like, He's in his 30s. As soon as this coronavirus is done, we're going to go get a beer or we're going to go hang out or I'll go see him at a show or, you know, the next time there's a leftist book party or whatever else, you'll just see him around in New York. And uh, it's it's very uh, it's very tragic. Um, And I just I hate that he would hit me up from time to time and, and, you know, be like, hey, man, check out this video. And, you know, I would or I. In one case, there was like one, I was like, "Uh, you know, sorry, I'm busy right now. I will check it out later. And then it's like, you just don't realize that this, that it's going to end suddenly like that with, with no way of, of knowing. And I was very grateful for the the time that, that we all got to spend with him. And uh, it's just, it's just a fucking tragedy that, um, that it's, it's all ended so suddenly and there won't be any more time. And, um, and I guess last thing I, I would say is, there's factional stuff on the left. You know, we all have political disagreements and uh, uh, it can be very passionate and very heated sometime. And Michael was one of those guys who was a peacemaker. He was loved by all sides, but he was a very smart thinker. He thought he talked to everybody. You know, part of why he kind of sometimes got it from all sides was he'll talk to everybody, no matter what your views are. If he thinks your heart is in the right place and you're a smart person, he'll talk to you and he'll try to understand where you're coming from. And, it's just such a tragedy um, to me because I know, uh, as you might know, based on my particular Twitter preferences and grievances, I am not a coalition builder. What? Uh, I am not a, uh, let's say, universally beloved figure. I, I have my, my partisan biases, but Michael was the kind of guy who's beloved by people on what can be called, quote unquote, my side, but also the other side, on every side of the left. And I think the only hope going forward is that there are people like Michael that can build bridges across all sides of these very, at times, passionate political disputes. And, um, you know, when I thought of what the left would be going forward, it was people like Michael who would be leading it and kind of, you know, he had all these plans to build all these media networks and, and bring all these people together and, and explore all these these different ideas. And, I don't know, man, just on both a political level and both on a, this guy was my friend and I'm so fucking sad that I won't get to see him anymore level. It's, it's a, it's a major tragedy and I'm going to miss him. And, but I am grateful for the time that I got to know him. Yeah. Losing him was, uh, just, just heartbreaking and, um, gut wrenching. And I, I think his, his, you know, from, uh, a little time we had with him uh the he he seemed really devoted to bringing uh joy to activism which can be often a very uh joyless task if you if you let it get to you and uh i i think that a great way to i i think honor him and remember him is to just continue in that spirit that you know uh even when we're facing tremendous adversity as we are now um you know try to try to take a page from his book and and just celebrate the victories and try not to let the losses get to you because uh otherwise you'd be overwhelmed and i think a, a lot of a lot of what he did and a lot of you know what i've 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 seen from the outpouring of support um, for him, for what he did was, was, you know, really helped people in, in just getting, getting through this fight and doing it with such a a positive and funny 
uh, perspective and and losing that is I, I think a, a a big loss for all of us. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know Michael other than through his interactions with our podcast and like really mainly through his work with Jacobin and stuff. And how I'm going to remember him is as someone who was like really keen to create a platform for and bring back rigorous debate among leftists where you're free to say what you want and it's not like a you can all be free thinkers and passionately debate things and it brings you closer together it doesn't uh divide you up and he wanted he was like very compassionate in that way and he combined it with this like burning desire to really to to win those electoral battles and to win those policy fights and like all get like he wanted everyone to get a lot sharper, but also more compassionate. And I think that was like, he's a really dynamic guy in that regard. I'm going to miss him for that. Yeah. I, um, I remember, so the episode we did, we, um, we recorded with him at the time of, uh, we just found out about the wipeout of the, the Labour Party under Corbyn in the United Kingdom, and we were all feeling very depressed going into it. But I just remember having him there and talking to him for an hour and a half, or we did a long episode. I just remember how much better I felt at the end of it. And that's kind of like what he was so good at, is like he, was a, he wasn't a Pollyanna. He understood how the world worked very well, but he had such a good attitude. And, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of people who talked about how good he was at kind of talking callers and just other people off the ledge after Bernie won and, and everything else, just the work goes on and we, and we have to, and we have to play our role in that. And he just had this one quote that I, that I loved that I, that I retweeted. I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry, but it's um, be kind with people and be ruthless with systems. And I think that's the best approach that you can have going forward. And also, I, I did get to DM, DM him one time, because when he did our episode, if you listen to it, he does this very funny Trump impression about uh, <laughs> Trump uh, gives that speech where he goes, you know what uh, my second favorite book is? The Out of the Deal. And you know what my favorite book is? And then, you know, the, the crowd applause. He goes, that's right, the Bible. <laughs> And I just remember, I just had that in my head for like months, just like his impression of Trump going, that's right, the Bible. <laughs> and I got to DM and just tell him how funny that was. And it, it still it still makes me laugh. And uh, yeah, uh, um, the, thank you, Michael. And uh, and if you're listening to this, just the people you want to spend time with, just, just hit them up. Because, you know, even if they're young, um, people can die like that at 37 years old. And uh, you never know. So just be nice to people and uh, spend time with your loved ones. And with that, this is from Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Pollywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. Uh, I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Uh, we will continue this discussion of uh, Bernard Arnault on the Patreon. We'll talk further about his labor abuse, animal cru- cruelty, environmental damage, um, government connections, tax evasions, all of his scandals. We will continue this story on our Patreon. Thank you for listening. Rest in peace, Michael Brooks.